The Gist is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks, all available for listening on your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 30th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So you know how after Mardi Gras hits, if you're not Catholic or if you weren't paying attention to Mardi Gras at all, you'll see maybe an item on the news about a parade and you're like, oh yeah, that was Mardi Gras. Oh yeah, Tuesday, it's Tuesday, Fat Tuesday. But if you went to the streets of New Orleans, everything would be strewn with cups and beads and urine. It was like a hurricane hit it. And in fact, many hurricanes had hit it. And there's the entire population staggering, bleary-eyed into the light. And they'd all be like, oh, how could you not know this just happened? This is the same thing that happens with The Bachelorette. When it ends, I, I, I don't follow it at all, but when it ends the next day, everyone's just wandering around saying, this, this was an occurrence. This changed me. And I'm like, really? Tell me what happened. So today, I will report to you everything I learned about The Bachelorette, which apparently is the most important thing that's ever happened in the world. The Bachelorette, her name is Andy Dorfman. She quit her job to be on the show. So that's okay, right? What, did she work in a flower shop? Cigars, cigarettes, that kind of thing? No, she was a district attorney, an assistant district attorney. (laughs) She left that profession looking for love. Now imagine if you're a dude in jail and Andy Dorfman was your prosecutor. You're like, she was so uncommitted to that job that she left to be on ABC's The Bachelorette, yet here I am doing 5 to 15. You are pissed. Also, Andy Dorfman, as the name might imply, is Jewish. And the bachelor, the man who won her love, is Jewish. And they were both born within a couple years of each other. And they both live in Atlanta. So this seems like the least efficient way for two people in the exact same social circle to meet, right? To rely on the multi-million dollar branded media property seen throughout the world. Couldn't they have just gone to the Pearlstein bat mitzvah? Wouldn't that have been more efficient? All this mishigas to get Josh and Andy together to win the rose ceremony. Wait, hold on. I'm looking at Andrea and she's giving me a look. Uh, no, she's saying you don't win the rose ceremony. All right, I know what it was. To win the Afi Komen. She had hid the Afi Komen to his heart and he found the Afi Komen. I hope I'm getting that right. Listen, it's more than I think we all need to know about The Bachelorette. But on the show today, we will keep up the theme of romance. Wait until the spiel as we debut a leaked OkCupid ad based on the fact that OkCupid was doing experiments on its users, telling people who weren't good matches that they were good matches. <laughs> Hilarity ensued. Also, I will try to rewrite the social norms around biking, biking in the urban setting. But first, just two more days left for Congress to do something. How's that looking, guys? Congress adjourns on Friday for a five-week stint, all of August off. Oh man, I can see the attack ad now. Representative Jaspers doesn't want you to know he takes all of August off, just like the French. But anyway, they take all of August off, always have. And there's still a lot on the agenda. The VA, immigration, I think they patch the highways. Why do they always wait until the last minute? Well, joining me now is Dave Weigel. He's Slate's senior political reporter. Hello, Dave. Oh, thanks for having me again. Absolutely. So the question is, why do they always wait until the last minute? You know, it's even harder this year because... The game is that in August and in December, when people respectively have heat, 
scaring them out of the city and holidays scaring them back home, they get a lot of stuff done. And actually, DC's fairly pleasant in polar vortex right now, so they're, they're following the usual pattern. They just can't get anything done until, until the last minute. One of the fights this time is actually about Democrats trying to make the next fight come a little sooner, and Republicans refuse and try to punt it even further into the future because they, you know, they haven't gotten a bad deal so far from all of these crises being driven at the last minute. So who benefits from the general overall brinksmanship? Oh, God. (laughs) These winner and loser questions are really struggling now to penetrate the cynicism wall around D.C. Well, but maybe, (laughs) yeah, I'm just thinking maybe you could get into the mindset. What would a Republican, how would they articulate why this is okay? And then how would a Democrat and who do you think has a better argument? I think the way everyone is operating right now, and I've been wondering when it would happen, happened about this this last week, the last month, is that Republicans are fairly confident they can sit on their hands and do nothing and win a lot of seats in November. They come January, we'll either have, you know, in a bad year, 48, 49 senators, and in a really good year, maybe 52, 53, mm-hmm. and they'll have more members of Congress. So anything that looks like a major deal that they would need to broker if there's a way to punt to next year on it they will they'll do so and so there are republicans who wanted a giant immigration deal before the 2016 election well they'd rather renegotiate that when they have more republicans around so one uh, area that we haven't touched on the va and funding that's on the table how's that look that is the one piece that might pass there were actually a couple of stories last week from huffington post from some Sources, you know, writing their Washington dysfunction story, the kind that I've just been describing that we can kind of write every day. Yeah. And they focused on the VA uh, because it, it looked like Bernie Sanders, who's the chairman of the, of the committee in the Senate, had been double-crossed by Republicans in the House and nothing was going to happen. Uh, it happened. I mean, over the weekend, they got a deal that basically kind of limited the amount of people who can rush into the VA system. They have mm-hmm. a, you can get in if you just got out of one of the hot wars we're going, but the people who have been retired for a while and might want to get into the system soon, they, they held off on them. So they saved a bunch of money. They got below the cost estimate. They're going to do something on that. So way to go. The giant crisis that forced a cabinet secretary to resign after about a month and a half, they got something. That's the one thing we think is going to pass. The, the problem with immigration, I mean, you might be about to ask about immigration, actually. How about immigration? Problem with immigration is that the, the president requested a small emergency amount of money, three point seven billion, to plus up some aid to Honduras and Guatemala and these countries that are producing these migrant children fleeing across the border, uh, to add to the aid we have on the border right now. It's something that was not really contradictory to what Republicans wanted. They proposed instead less than seven seven hundred million dollars. So you know, $3 billion less than what the president asked for, which is billions less than they wanted in the first place. Right. And the game of the week is whether House Republicans can ha- pass that in their chamber and then avoid any blame for a larger bill not coming together. You know, when I was talking to House Republicans yesterday after their meetings, they were kind of naked about this. I mean, I John Fleming from Louisiana is one of the real nice, honest conservative members of saying, yeah, this is pretty bad and no one really likes the bill, but... We want to be able to go home for election saying we did something. So we've been talking about ways that congressional inactivity, which is actually a function of congressional dysfunction, has affected the content of bills. But, you know, there's a lot to government besides what's in a bill. Is there other ways in which uh, congressional dysfunction, which is showing up now as a last minute rush to pass some bills, any other ways in which congressional dysfunction has hurt efficient government overall? 
let's look through the other scandals that uh, affected everything this year. Since May last year, basically, the Obama administration has been in the throes of scandal related to the IRS and its handling of applications by conservative groups, and it's it's been scandalized by the revelations about the NSA. And in both cases, you've had two different forces slowing down any actual reform. On the IRS side, Republicans are actually very happy if the IRS is just completely inefficient. And there, there's been good reporting, mostly by ProPublica and Center for Public Integrity, just tracking how well the IRS has been looking into nonprofit groups that you know can, seem to be political organizations that find a way in the tax structure to to hide their donors, uh, they've g- kind of given up on it. I mean, they're so afraid of being called in front of Congress and being shamed for investigating, but they're not doing it. And the IRS has proposed a couple of rules. They've been shot down. Basically, there is no reform to this problem that started it, which is the problem of organizations using the tax code to hide who they are. There's no there's no resolution to that because Republicans don't want it. And the NSA, that's actually something that's incredibly popular to reform. Mm-hmm. If you if you poll in any in the question in any way, really, people from what they understand what the NSA was doing want to, want to roll it back. They want less collection metadata. And you're having in the House and Senate bills that look like reform bills. I, I think uh, Marcy Wheeler, who's a really good analyst of this stuff, I think calls them like the Franken bills that just don't actually touch or prevent most of what people d- d- were trying to prevent with these bills in the first place. You'll have the reformers like Ron Wyden bang their tables, I was about to say in the dark, but the Senate's pretty well lit, bang, bang, bang their very well lit tables and say this bill isn't good enough. In both of those cases, you have Washington failing to do anything that, God, you can find lots of comments from them last May at least promising they had to do and they, they understood they needed to do. Gotcha. Well, I could say I understand it a little more now, but I don't have to like it. But that's okay. Dave, <laughs> Dave Wagle is Slate's senior political reporter. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. And we are sponsored today by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from. Of course, they have free apps for your iPhone, your Android, your Windows phone. With Audible, you own the book. You don't stream it. It's in the My Library thing where you can access your books anytime. You can get it from your phone. They've got the Whisper Sync thing. This lets you switch back and forth between Kindle and the audiobook. One stops, the other starts. So I'm going to tell you about a book that was recommended to me that I'm excited to read. And it's called Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator. It's by Ryan Holiday. It's read by Ryan Holiday. It is described on the cover as a playbook for the dark arts of exploiting the media. Sounds cool. It's in my queue. I'm going to get it for free. You can get it for free or any of their other 150,000 titles for free by checking out audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. They also have this offer where if you don't like any book, don't worry about it. You can exchange it for any other title, anytime, no questions asked. So that's audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. You know the code. You know the deal. Check it out. So I've been participating in New York's bike sharing program for about a year, and it's been going on for about a year. Yesterday, I went to go get a city bike, and a guy asked me a question. Hey, do you want a helmet? And I was like, what's the catch? No, it's a real helmet. They were just giving away free helmets. Helmets didn't even have a sponsor logo on it. There was no foundation behind it. They weren't asking you to sign up for a credit card, just honest to goodness, free helmets. I said, what's going on? And that guy took me over to meet Abby. Abby was the young woman who was spearheading the program. I talked to her and here's that. 
I'm giving away free helmets to anyone who is on a bike or about to get on one. And this is not a charity or a foundation, it's just you? No, it's just me. It's me and a, a few of my friends donated some money, but it's mostly just for me. It comes out of pocket? Yes, totally. Tell me the inspiration. Uh, my dad was driving, uh, he was riding in Rock Creek Park in D.C. two years ago, today, and he, um, he always wore a helmet every single day and um, he wasn't wearing one that day and he went over the handlebars and suffered traumatic brain injury. So I, I do this every year on the day. This is a once a year thing? It is. It's awesome. How many helmets are you giving out? Today, 180. And why 180? I donate however old my father would be. So he would be 57 and then the rest are donated. That's awesome. What kind of reaction do you get? <laughs> Mixed. <laughs> Surprisingly, um, most people want to know who it's from and that it's not sponsored by a corporation because it's New York. Um, and then other people are just happy. I, they, I get some good reactions sometimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a good practice with rejection. <laughs> Do you think New York should mandate helmets on these city bikes? You know, it's a hard call. Um, I, I've really gone I back and forth about it, and and I honestly just think that at the end of the day, it really is up to the person. Um, but at the same time, if someone had been here, standing here two years ago, then and given it to my dad, he would still be my dad. So. So I really have begun to think a lot about biking and bike lanes and how bikes get along with cars and pedestrians. It's like you may love dogs or adore dogs or think dogs are cute, but until you own a dog, you're not really in the world of dogs. The same with babies, the same with cosplay, but really more dogs and babies and now bikes. I have so many thoughts on bikes and I'm going to put my thoughts into you right now. That's why I have a podcast. <laughs> well, joining me now is Jason Gay, who is a sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal yes. and an urban bike. Bicyclist yes. and a thinker on bicycling issues. Hello, Jason. Thank you. So give me a little bit of your history as an urban bicyclist yeah. and uh, how it's changed now that so many people are, say, city biking. Well, I've lived in New York City for about a decade and a half. And when I first got here, like a lot of people, I looked at people riding bikes in New York City and said, I will never do that. That looks completely insane. And you know what this is, Mike? This is a love story. <laughs> because I would go on to meet my future wife who was a cyclist, and not just a cyclist in New York City, but one of those crazy people who got on a bike, put on the spandex, got on a bike, and rode down the island of Manhattan to New Jersey and did these 100-mile rides on the weekends, which I thought was even crazier. And instead of breaking up, I got the bike. Uh -huh. And I proceeded to fall in love, not just with my future wife, but with the sport of cycling. I progressed in the typical trajectory, which is that I said, I'm just getting this little bike. I'm not going to get spandex. I'm going to have, you know, cool shorts and I'm not doing any of that stuff. And then sooner or later, I was in the spandex and got the fancier bike than the fancier bike. And I went from being just a weekend warrior to racing. I was on a racing team. Now, don't get the wrong idea. I was terrible. <laughs> I might be the worst city amateur racer in New York City history, but it was some of the most exciting times I've ever had in the city. And since then, don't do as much racing, but still ride all the time in New York City and have watched with just awe the way that this city has evolved in terms of its relationship with the bicycle. And so the notion of the bicyclist, the dude with the zippered down yeah. shirt and the wraparound yeah. glasses, it's not untrue. I will say that. No. They are often pretentious. They are often haughty. Sure. However... 
I think that there's this uh, phenomenon that we all notice them more because let's say you're an auto enthusiast and yeah. you take driving seriously. We don't know. You're in your car. You're yeah. indistinguishable. Yeah. And I don't know if there's such a thing as a pedestrian, like a dedicated pedestrian who's, sure, people go out walking, maybe joggers are like that. But the bicyclists are haughty and they are a problem in what I'm going to get to, the ecosystem of biking, but they also are much more noticeable than their counter, than their walking and driving counterparts. Well, you mentioned the ecosystem, and it is an ecosystem, and, you know, it is true that no one comes home and says, ah, I hate walkers. Yeah. I just saw all these people walking around. They're just walking. As a cyclist, my hate was reserved for rollerbladers. I felt that rollerbladers took up too much width on the bike path, and they were kind of like tadpoles wiggling their legs, right? And, it, they, I, you know, I had this absolutely undeserved agita towards them that just, I feel, is what the general public sometimes feels for cyclists. And as you said, I think that, you know, their cyclists can't look at themselves without a little bit of self-criticism and appreciate the fact that sometimes we do flout the law yeah. You are not a cyclist if you have never gone through a red light. You are not a cyclist if you've never gone through a stop sign. You are not a cyclist if you've not said, hey, on your left. And so we do need to work on our behavior. But it's so weird that cyclists would be, would forget their pedestrian roots. I mean, I often think of a bicycle. <laughs> and as... once we got on land and we started walking, we yeah. forgot that we it's were like fish. You never, you never were the guy. I was like, oh, I didn't realize... We have to be kind yeah. to the people who don't realize. And I'm not like you. I'm not a real bicyclist. None of my shirts zipper in the front and are really tight around oh, the chest. Oh, that'll change. Though, that'll change. You know, I actually got into b- biking just because I was attracted to spandex. Yeah. But I, I definitely do think as we give more and more lanes and the right of way, it shouldn't even be the right of way. It should be, it should be more like... You know, we've made an accommodation to you, but yeah. now you have yeah. to be accommodating yeah. to the rest yeah. of us. That's a very good thought, and I, I that would be the ultimate scenario. I feel the one mistake that New York has made, which is a common mistake, is that they are trying to accommodate for other modes of transportation without taking anything away from the automobile. That has largely happened in New York City. Now, I know we have things like we have the Broadway zone with the tables and all that, and we've shut down vehicle access in certain quadrants of the city. But by and large, we haven't taken away much at all. And when you're doing that, what that does is just basically take that sliver and you're just increasing competition for it. For example, one of my dreams would be an open Fifth Avenue stretching up the length of the city. Like if you had a Fifth Avenue that was just open to bicycle, pedestrian traffic, people who are walking their ferrets now that you can really own a whole new world. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That would be a very very that would be an environment in which that can happen however when it's all contained to a tiny sliver of the west side highway it's still a free for all so as far as other cities do you have any uh, kind of universal urban biking tips well a wear a helmet ah. keep those earbuds out of your ear no matter where you are and be alert i mean you should ask me if i've been to portland have you been to Portland? I've been to Portland. Both of them? Okay, the Mecca. I'm not, but I have been to both of them, All but right. I have ridden a bike and even raced a bike, if you can believe it, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it is an amazing place where infrastructure has really been built around the bicycle. Uh, but you still have to keep your head on a swivel, man. You still have to be careful. And, you know, what I 
really, really do appreciate is the idea that these conversations are happening at the civic level, and they're happening because of demand. Mm-hmm. It's not just somebody sitting in City Hall saying, like, oh, you know what would be great if we had a bike path? It's people who are like, I want to ride a bike. I hate driving my car every day. I want to lose a little weight. I want to like be outside. I want to like, have this bike. It's fun. And I want to ride to work every day. What are you going to do for me? And cities are responding to a demand issue, which is wonderful. Jason Kay, sports columnist, biker for the Wall Street Journal. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. And now the spiel. Without telling its users, the dating website OkCupid faked data and plunged the lovelorn into mismatched dates. As an experiment, OkCupid would pair users who really weren't compatible, but give them phony scores so they'd think they were compatible. Guess what happened next? Incompatible people didn't really get along as much as compatible people. That's crazy, right? OkCupid announced these and other experiments on its blog under the happy headline, We Experiment on Human Beings! Exclamation mark. To be fair, some of the experiments did yield interesting results, or at least interesting bar graphs. I had never seen an x-axis that ranged from she's much hotter to he's much hotter before the publication of these results. But when OkCupid told mismatched people that they were matched, the mismatched people didn't get along as well as if they really were well-matched. Now, the CEO's description of this experiment, which is admittedly charming, says, quote, when we tell people they're a good match, they act as if they are, even when they should be wrong for each other. This statement is pretty much nonsense. Here's how the CEO defined them acting as if they were a good match. People would message each other four times. And he says as soon as people message each other four times, that means they're a good match. No, it doesn't. It proves nothing. And in fact, if people are mismatched, maybe they'd message each other more like, I can't, are you really saying that? That doesn't seem like someone who's a perfect match for me would say. And anyway, when you compare the stats of how often matched people message each other and how often mismatched people message each other, it turns out that the truly well-matched message each other 15% more often than the fake matched. And then there's the issue of what about all the dates that OkCupid pushed people into? You know, all the, hey, let's grab drinks. Wait, you're a Mormon? I'm a sommelier. How did this happen? Is OkCupid even talking about that? Actually, they are. We, here at The Gist, have been leaked an OkCupid radio ad touting the results of their mismatched experiment. Here it is now. I'm a single mom in her 40s. Early 40s. I like wine tastings. I just finished the Goldfinch, and I can't live without a good cup of coffee. The name's Diamondback. I ride with the Grizzlies. When OkCupid set me up with Diamondback, screen name Love Digs, I thought maybe an archaeologist, maybe a weekend farmer. I was intrigued. Love Digs means Loki's outlaws and vipers die in grizzly states. It's a warning to our rival gangs. If you don't protect your turf, it gets taken from you. Diamondback was very standoffish. Not much of a reader and refused to share a cheese plate. If you don't protect your cheese plate, it gets taken from you. Okay, Cupid said we were a match, but it was a terrible date. Grizzlies for life! This will be- 
Ever since I broke up with my last girlfriend, I've been using OkCupid. They set me up with Blake, who I thought was pretty butch in the picture. I liked that. Hey, I'm Blake. I like golf, music, and poker. Stacy did too. Oh, and also, the NBA. The WNBA? Well, I thought she was pretty. We had a lot in common, but she didn't seem super into me. Blake is a guy. I am a lesbian. I do not want to date a guy. I was into it. Not me. What the hell, OkCupid? Thanks, OkCupid. I'm 37, independent thinker, conservative, worried about America losing its greatness. I don't like to get all heavy on the first date, but if you ask me, the United States is ceding too much power to the United Nations. I thought OkCupid could help me meet a guy who shared my values, a like-minded individual who had given some thought to the encroaching power of the Secretary General of the United Nations. I am Ban Ki-moon, Secretary General of the United Nations. This was a horrible, horrible date. I don't know what OkCupid was thinking. It's so hard to meet a guy who isn't gay, married, or Secretary General of the United Nations. Thanks, OkCupid. You suck, OkCupid. You tried, OkCupid. I know your home address, OkCupid. In the spirit of openness, we call on OkCupid to allow in dating monitors. And this isn't even OkCupid's theme music. It's eHarmonies. And why is it so upbeat? We all had awful dates. Actually, I can explain that. I'm Brian McAndrews, CEO of Pandora. For the last month, we've been running an experiment. We find people's musical preferences, and then we play them only the music they'd hate, just to fuck with them. I mean, science. For instance, say you like Iron Maiden. We'll put some Enya in your playlist. Prefer Bonnie Vare? No problem. Best of Kids Bop is going in your feed. The music for this commercial. Also, we ordered lunch for you. You're a diabetic vegan, right? Please enjoy the rock candy encrusted lobster. What do we care? You're just our customers. We run the computers. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcast, generally gets a four-star rating on the popular website Producer Mingle. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has been ruled compatible with all Region 3 DVD players and also Dolphin Safe. You can subscribe at iTunes or listen in SoundCloud, the very orange-orange SoundCloud. You can sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We have a Twitter feed. Yes, we do. It's Slate Gist. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. I'm told we have over a thousand likes. Or is Facebook manipulating us into just thinking that? Email the gist at Slate.com. I knew that when you tuned in that we'd be soulmates. You so get me. Thanks for listening. Sorry, I just really like that cheese plate.